Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Hi, Erica. <laughs> Hi, Katie. <laughs> Happy Book Talk Day. <laughs> Happy Book Talk Day. All right. Wait, can I still do my what's a week bit or is that cut? <laughs> Just, you know, a little behind the scenes, little peek behind the curtain. This is like our fourth time trying to get this intro going, but I think we finally figured it out. Yeah, I've said hi We have a good times. spot. We have a good spot for the Wi-Fi. Okay, so let's go over what happened in this last section, because per usual with this book, it was a lot. Um, we start with Rhea quitting her job in a crazy dramatic way, and we find out that Ella was the one who turned the lights on Gertie in the house, um, but she decides she wants to help Gertie and turns against her mom. We finally find out why Rhea's career was ruined. Yikes. And then we see her commit another act of violence by hitting and attacking Larry while he's sleeping, thinking that he was Gertie. Um, so the wild family is back in the hospital, but now they are mad. They're fed up with all of these neighbors. Um, once they get out, Arlo walks the neighborhood calling out all the neighbors, which ends up in a mob of the men beating him up almost to death. Um, the kids eventually go down in the hole to try to find Shelly and exonerate Arlo, which they do. Um, and people seem to be semi coming around to the willed side of the story, but we'll never know for sure because the scene ends with Rhea killing her whole family and then herself. And that is, and that is it. That is full spoilers. You know, I'm having a bad day. Am I having as bad of a day as Rhea? No. Yeah. I think that's like a pretty good, um, <laughs> tool to measure your frustration on. I mean, I don't think anyone's anywhere near where Raya's at, but holy shit, she is. Yikes. That whole section. I feel like we got a lot of clarity on, you know, not necessarily. I feel like it did a good job of not necessarily pinpointing like what is actually going on with Raya, but like we get a little bit more of her history to understand kind of that these acts of violence are not like, these are pretty baked into who she is, which is terrifying. I think. I think that this book was such a good thriller the whole time. I was just like, could not predict what the next twist would be, which I think I said in a previous episode, like I thought I knew where we were going, but I really didn't. Um, I think the way that all the news articles talk about the murders, I was convinced it was the whole Wilds family. And for it to turn out the way that it did for it to be Rhea killing everybody, like I just, I still can't even, it's so crazy. It's so crazy. What did you think about it? Last week, I talked about the layers of suspense that Sarah had built throughout the book. And I think what I didn't realize at the time is that she was also leading us to expect that that the wilds were going to all die. Um, and then the twist of Rhea taking out her entire family and herself, I truly did not see it coming. It was so, like, just deeply unnerving and also totally took me by surprise. And I love when a book does that. I love when I like can't see it coming and it just comes out of nowhere. And it was so poetic and so sad. And yeah, I love that we kind of got my Greek tragedy ending. <laughs> but I thought the part about the kids going down in the sinkhole too, I just want to say about that part, I thought that was crazy. Um, like I knew they would try to rescue her, but I thought 
A, I thought somebody else was going to die. I thought that's how Julia and Larry were going to go. Um, but for them to, like, all go down there together and the Rat Pack to, like, band together was crazy. It was a – I thought it was a good ending. What were your kind of, like, overall – what's your overall rating? Give me a one to five. I will give this book a 4.4. <laughs> okay, cool. That's my rating. Can we, uh, can we get some, <laughs> some information on the difference between a 4.4 to 4.5 and also why you picked that number? <laughs> I really, really liked this book. I think it was very surprising. It was very engaging. And I really did not see a lot of it coming. I think that's what I really loved about it. I loved the surprises. I think it also had a lot of really, really smart, well-researched parts of the book. Like I loved all the environmental stuff. I love at the end, like the really strong, like climate change kind of metaphor that's happening and the different types of trauma that Sarah incorporated. I just felt like it was very well done. Um, I think like the kids going into the well and like, or getting it going into the sinkhole and being able to like capture her. Like I felt that like that part was maybe a little unrealistic. That part was unrealistic. So that's the only reason. For sure. Yeah. That's the only reason I don't like love that part. Um, also like, you know, just the one time when Julia puts her hand down and that happens to be like when the German shepherd bites her. I just felt like some of it was like a little far fetched in terms of the plot, but in general, I really liked it. That's my long-winded answer i'm gonna give this book a 4.5 as well um i think or also since you said 4.4 i think i agree with um what you said about there being some unrealistic parts i think that definitely is something that you dislike in books more than i do but i can see your point um I think for me, there's just a bunch of stories that were kind of unfinished and that i wanted to know more about and i think some books do a really good job of kind of wrapping those up um, and this one, there was just a lot of moments where I was like, okay, are we going to find out what happened to Peter? Like, are the wilds okay? Um, and that kind of coupled with some of the unrealistic closure we did get, like these kids were all able to go through the sinkhole successfully where one diver couldn't go through and then actually pull a body out through the hole that the diver couldn't go through. So I don't know. Sorry, my microphone just fell. Um, so yeah, I think, I think overall it was really good. Like it's definitely traumatic and interesting to read I had no idea what was going to happen um I think if I would have been reading this not as part of book talk I would have read it in like a day and a half I thought it was really good I want to I want to ask about the ending and what you think about it because I know you don't like an open ending and it's not exactly clear how things end up for the wild family like Arlo dies of hepatitis, but I couldn't tell if he had relapsed and died from it later or if he had hepatitis when, you know, when the story is taking place. And we just don't know about that. It's also not clear, like, Rhea's relationship necessarily with, like, Larry. So how did you feel about the ending in general with both, like, Rhea killing everybody and also what we know about the Wilds? Yeah, I think um, I was definitely super surprised by that the whole ending um I think we were like I definitely expected the wild family to be the one that died so I was shocked that Rhea obviously killed her whole family I think that my gut feeling at the end and the reason or not the reason but what I would assume the reason is for her leaving in the ending um in the very far future where where Arlo has died where they're living in California is that they are okay and I think this is 
you know, kind of what you talked about before. Like, I think this for me is, is not really an ending or an open ending because I feel like at the end of the day, Rhea is gone. You know, the wilds are going to move. They're already packed up. You know that this part, this neighborhood is never going to be the same, but I think like the tragedy and this particular trauma is really over with the death of that family. So to me, it's like, now we just have to deal with it. Now we have to just process it and move on. Um, and we like, we know what happens, like the drama happened and now it's really like, how do we move on from here? But not, will we survive? So I liked it. I think there's enough left up to the imagination. You don't know exactly what happens to every single character, but I think enough to know nothing else crazy is going to happen. I don't know. What did you think of it? We've talked about obviously how we thought the wilds were going to be the ones who died at the end. I think the fact that they don't die makes you feel better, even though it's a very dark ending that the people we are rooting for who were like unfairly targeted and who were kind of put through this like horrific ordeal, at least they're alive. At least they have each other. At least they got out. And that makes the super dark ending, which again, we like knew was coming. We were told it was coming. Um, it makes it almost more palatable. So I think it's an interesting like trick where if maybe I didn't know that this was coming, I would be like shocked and maybe more upset. But since I know the wilds are at least alive and together, I feel like better about it. And that's like an interesting updating process that's happening with our emotions throughout the book. I think it would have just been like extremely tragic and horrific if the family who was really bullied throughout this whole book, who was really like, attacked with this whole book also then died I feel like it's almost kind of a like a sense of justice that they get to live that they survive this ordeal and and like a, a nod to their resiliency as well but just like it does give you some kind of hope that you know not all is lost obviously a lot is lost but people did survive and and it will go on you know throughout this book until the very end um you know nobody changes their mind so I mean, they do, I guess, but really like they find Shelly and then we read in some news articles that they're like, yeah, you know, we saw the marks, we heard Ella, but could we really all have made it up? And then in the last news article of the whole book, Gertie says like, what would prove it to you? He didn't do it. And then, then, you know, the media is like, okay, an admission of guilt, you know, she, Arlo did do it. What do you think she's trying to say? Or what do you think about the fact that like, their minds were not really changed by Rhea killing her family and by finding Shelly, that they're still not believing their kids. It's really difficult to change someone else's mind, and yet people do change their minds very quickly sometimes. But it's such a high bar. It's such a high threshold to convince someone to see something differently, especially when it's something that's so insidious. Like, this person is a bad person. This person is a cheater. This person is a liar. Those types of, like, labels really stick to someone, and they become difficult to, like, unwedge. And that doesn't mean that I don't think people can change their mind or update their beliefs, but I do think we respond differently, especially to negative information. I mean, it makes sense, like, evolutionarily, that, like, if there's a bad person in the tribe, you should remember that. You want to remember that like that predator who is notoriously aggressive. And so the negative things really stick a lot more to to our psychology. And so I think that's part of what um, 
what is happening here is it's part about the information. It's part about the, you know, the, the nature of it. And then also this person who they already had priors about, they didn't like Arlo. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust their family. They already kind of excluded them. And this just confirms that they were right all along. And also that the evil is outside. The evil is not inside. And if the evil's outside, then you can push the outside away. You can cut it off. And instead of looking at your own things. So there's a lot of, different pieces which are pushing them into this belief and I think they would all have to move to get them to change their mind and that's essentially what Gertie is saying like what can I even offer you at this point I like it's been so long there's nothing that we can do to change your mind essentially like it is it it, this is never going to leave us which is really sad I think it is true you know when people say that whatever the evil is or whatever the threat is, is something that they can control or scapegoat. It's so much easier to handle than having to deal with all of your own shit. So I think that's what they're doing to this family. It's easy. And um, I think also there's just so much to be said about people not wanting to be wrong, not wanting to have made these decisions that are awful, like beating Arlo in the street, like in order to justify that they're the kind of person that could do that to another human they had to have had a good reason. And so, and they won't, they don't want to believe anything other than that. And I think that's, I think it's one of the Ottomanelli's who says, you know, we couldn't have all been wrong. Like, yep, you mm-hmm. absolutely could all be wrong. But mm-hmm. people, it's just another way to kind of justify some crazy actions. So, wow, what a read. What a read. Okay, well, stay tuned for our interview with Sarah where we'll talk about all these themes and more. And I'll finally get to ask her all my burning questions. <laughs> Mostly about the panopticon. <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> my name is Sarah Langan. I wrote Good Neighbors. Um, I... Uh, Studied writing at Columbia, which is where you are, Erica. And um, it's my fourth novel, but the first that I've published in a long time since I had kids and sort of um, made some changes to my work. So it's, it's a little bit of a departure from my pre- previous three novels, which were squarely horror genre. Whereas this one, Good Neighbors, is probably... I kind of think it's literary, but everybody's calling it a thriller. So And that's good, because... The, whatever, whatever they call it that sells makes me happy. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> like, I'll take both yeah. categories. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> One of the big pieces of this book is the contradictory evidence and how people, even in response to contradictory evidence, can sometimes dig deeper into their own convictions. Um, this definitely is like a hot topic that's happening with a lot of different topics today and a lot of different conversations that people are having where people will just double down even when they get opposing information that might be correct. Um, Is this something that you deliberately put into the book? Um, Do you think it's like essentially part of human nature? Like why uh, was this such a feature of the book with the parents not listening to their kids, with Rhea ignoring all of this correct information? Um, What was your reasoning behind that choice? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I was trying to be reflective of the world we're living in now and sort of some of the reasons were so radicalized. That was my approach and why I came to the story. Um, And I also also did these, you know, these um, sort of primary sources and things that I sort of interspersed the book with and the narrative um, 
because I thought it would be interesting to tell a story where uh, so often in, in real life, even if the event has happened to us personally, we don't have the overview and we don't know exactly, you know, someone might have an entirely different interpretation that is also true or defensible to them. And then on top of that, when we're um, living our lives, you know, reading the paper about current events, um, it's really hard to parse the information in ways that feel honest and um, in, in ways that we can recognize. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun if I were to tell a story where the reader got to know exactly what the truth was and exactly how people were coming toward the same event and why they had so many different interpretations despite having the same set of facts. And so you have that with the characters when, all, when, when this story happens in, in the narrative, but then you also have, I was trying to make a comment on media and the ways that media sort of spins it. And then the ways that the characters over the years, because this takes place, the story takes place in the near future, but then for years afterward, after this Maple Street Massacre, the characters are like interviewed and, and they're asked, well, have you changed your mind? And I wanted to talk about, yeah, the ways that guilt and shame makes people sort of double down when they're wrong. And so they're like, no, I'm sure I'm right, despite the people, the primary people recanting. I've, I've decided that I'm still right. And I wanted to talk about that. And I wanted to talk about the effects that has on those people, because those people are not in good places um, in their lives. So... So it was that whole thing, and I thought it might be cathartic um, for someone to have an entire story and be able to read the story and think about the ways that story works as opposed to reality. We read a lot about generational trauma um, in many of the books we read, and in this story, both Gertie and Rhea are dealing with kind of the after effects of trauma they experienced as children, um, and we kind of watch Rhea really come to terms with that with her own with her own trauma and her own struggles in a really raw way that I feel like almost made me sympathetic to her character, um, even as we watch it break her. So it ends, obviously, with Rhea killing her whole family and then herself. Um, so I'm just curious why you chose kind of that ending, and was it the only way for her to really, in your mind, kind of escape what she calls the murk or her own trauma? Were there any other alternative endings for her as you were writing, or was this always kind of the, the way it was going to end for them? Um, that's a good question. So I, uh, you know, I made the promise from the beginning of the book that an entire family is murdered in cold blood. And we were like, not clear who that was. <laughs> yeah. And I knew, you know, that was going to happen. So the, the issue was, how was I going to do it? And who was going to go? And I thought I wanted the story to have that kind of heft and weight to it. And I also felt like the audience whether they were is going to upset them or not, needed that as well. And so I was there. And then, you know, there, there was an option, right? The option is that the wilds die. Well, I wasn't going to do that. And, like, that's kind of a, it's a nasty story because it ultimately is nihilistic. And it's saying, like, look at us Americans. We're really bad people. So, like, you have to think about the consequences of, of of your, you know, your endings. The other consequence, I could have had Rhea just kill herself, right? But 
if I had done that, what I would have turned her into the villain. And it was, it's like a Wicked Witch of the West story where she's gone, the witch is dead, and everyone's learned an important, valuable lesson, like an episode of Blossom or something. Um, but that's not, you know, the, that's not what the story is. And the story, I wanted the neighbors to be culpable because I feel like they really were the people who ran with it. And no one ever did knock on her door and say, how are you? Are you okay? Oh my God, Rhea, I'm feeling like you're not recognizing that your daughter is missing and hurt. And I, f I feel like you're trying to escape from that in crazy ways. Like, it's really apparent. Like, this idea that these neighbors were, like, dumb is wrong. Like, they, it was, I, th I think when you can really tell what anyone is thinking, no matter who you are, by just standing next to them and listening to the way they talk. And I think Rhea's pain was everywhere, was, like, screaming. Like, if you lived on that block, you felt her pain. And so the fact that everyone was like, I don't want to deal with her. I want to attack the Wild family because I'm looking for a scapegoat in my own life. And, you know, I, my own stuff is falling apart um, is sort of what I was talking about and thinking about. And, and Rhea herself is such a damaged woman. And she's, I loved her. I mean, I feel like she's come so far in the world. If you look at her upbringing, she was raised by no one. And she developed this coping mechanism that was quite spectacular. Like, a, a child at that age is going to invent magical thinking because she's so unsafe. Her father literally is just constantly drunk and having seizures from so much alcohol. So she's telling herself this story. It's okay. I'm not going to be alone in the house with a dead man. I'm magic. And if something really bad happens, I'll just go back in time and fix it. And like, that's, that's just a natural thing for a very intelligent child to do. And so as she gets older, it becomes narcissism, this like veil. And that wound is so incredibly deep and she's never had anyone approach her and say like, you're really fucked up. Like you are so fucked up. And you just wonder what would have been different. And I just feel like she, she climbed to such incredible heights. Like she was able to raise four kids despite all of this and, and, and lie. Like she had all this internal pain, but she was still able to make it look like everything was okay. And I, so, so some of it was also about suburbia and, and this facade that I think mothers specifically are you know, forced to wear to act like we're perfect. Because if we're not perfect, um, we threaten the society. You know, I, th I think we're really the last people that it's okay to just constantly criticize. Um, and so she's got to act perfect. And I think that causes a lot of harm too. One thing that Katie and I have disagreed about is whether the Wilds essentially handled this entire thing well or terribly. Um, and in the end, we don't really know exactly how they're doing or how well they process this as a family. Um, in your mind, how are they doing? Are they okay at the end of this book? Or are they destroyed uh, because of what happened to them? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think both. Like, I think that they're going to take a hit like anyone would. 
and then I think they're just okay. Like, I think there's, there's such resilient people. Like, the same people who grew up the way they grew up. Arlo, like, like in my mind, I don't know how much of this I wrote, um, but there's a lot of backstory with Arlo. His dad literally shot him up for the first time so that he could, because his dad was a failed musician, so that he could steal all the money and destroy his son because he was super jealous of him. That's Arlo's story. Like, he's got nobody. And then Gertie, the same thing. And somehow, they, finding each other instead of, like, instead of being codependent and making each other worse, they, they doubled down and were like, we're going we're gonna to have a family and we're never going to be like that. And we're going to give our kids everything we never got. And it's so admirable to me. And it's such a conscious choice in ways that I think people who have been handed their lives never make. You know, it's like you just have kids and then you move where your family lives and it's blah. But people who have to struggle for that. So I think, you know, the next scene is like, well, they got to get Arlo and Larry out of the hospital. And then, you know, they're probably, you know, I don't even think they'd sue. I think they'd just sell the house, move back someplace and just figure it out and just be really happy they still had each other. I think, yeah, that's kind of what we discussed. And I think when we talked about this, which I don't know if you've, if you've probably not listened to the other episodes, but in like when we're debating about it, I was saying I think that they're, you can see how strong they are as a family. And it's not that it doesn't affect them or that they don't occasionally also break, but you see Julia like growing up too as somebody who's experienced something awful in her childhood. You see her like kind of stepping up to, you know, her mom is not okay and she's, when she says she is, Julia's like, okay, I believe you. Because it's, you know, she's no longer like the kid who she realizes that in her head that she, you know, her mom might be lying about being okay and she just accepts it. I don't know. I think you see them kind of growing into strength, whether it's whether it's good or bad, whether they're getting strength through trauma and having to be resilient. Like, I think that they are still getting that in some way. I, I think it poses that, that good question of, like, since, since we're all going to meet trauma in our lives, is it, is it the trauma or is it the, the circumstances, like who we have to go to and whether we can talk about it that makes weathering it possible? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, okay, good. I'm glad they're like, okay, <laughs> at least in your mind. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad they're okay too. And they're in California at the end of the book, right? Oh, that's so, right, I forgot. I wrote in that Arlo gets this great job because he's inspired yeah, so, and he writes like music out of it. So. Yes, he comes out of retirement. Yeah, I love that. So I feel like they are okay and they move far away and I think they're kind of just like, I mean, obviously no one's perfectly fine after that, but I feel like, yeah, they move on. They figure it out. Um, okay, so <laughs> one thing Erica will not stop talking about, so we have to still keep talking about it, is did you intend... And, well, before I ask this question, do you say her name Rhea or Rhea? I say Rhea, but Rhea, no one okay. else does, so maybe I have it wrong. <laughs> I just, so it's funny. the Titan, you know, the Titan Rhea, because the Titans eat their children. Rhea. Rhea. So. Oh. Haha. Love Wow. That. I did not make that connection at all. Me neither. Wow. Okay, so did you intend Rhea's dissertation about the Panopticon to be a metaphor for the neighborhood, for the sinkhole? Erica's actually dying to know more information about this Panopticon. I kind of did, yeah. I was thinking about the ways, well, but it was also a metaphor for social networks, like, like Facebook and these things that have sort of 
torn us apart in crazy ways. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was definitely on my mind. It was also in my mind. So if you ever read like Foucault and all of those, they get really masturbatory really quick where it's like, it's really fun to read, but you're down a rabbit hole and you're like, oh my God, like I could, I could sign, sign signify or sign, you know, like it, it never ends. And I feel like that's Rhea. Like, <laughs> like she's, she's just down this whole metaphor hole, you know? And so I wanted it to be like, like this whole time she's like, and I'm a genius. And then you finally read the thesis and you're like, she's writing about her, her alcoholic father and has no idea. And she thinks she's talking about Foucault, you know? <laughs> I thought she, Rhea, Rhea was in it. I wanted to just say, I didn't know anything about the Panopticon, but I did think she was a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had to give a, I gave like a two minute, um, blurb about what the panopticon is in Foucault's theory and what it would mean if it was an inverse panopticon and I was like so maybe the neighbors are the ones watching in the center and they're surveilling each other so I kind of like there's just I loved that like thread throughout it I felt like there was just like little like academic gems I feel like if I also was into like environmental science I would have the same reaction because there's so much interesting stuff about the toxins and the type of sinkhole and how it's reacting and like the smell like all of these things made it so real but I don't know anything about the environment but reading about Foucault I was like oh so fun (laughs) I loved it I'm glad no one else has asked about it it's been six months out (laughs) I have to stop Erica every episode funny right like (laughs) like no one it is no one no one laughed And then I think it doesn't like someone comments like, did you read that crazy thesis? Yeah. (laughs) Now that I am hearing you speak about the book, I feel like I get, I'm getting so many more layers. There are so many interesting um, things in terms of like human psychology that are woven through this book. And one of them is really about this like mob mentality and how the group of neighbors like transform each other and kind of like act as this unit and convince themselves as a unit of things that are maybe not real um, you know, have you thought about mob mentality at all? Do you think people are able to speak out against the group successfully? Um, and, you know, do you think that this like visceral need the neighbors had to protect their children and their neighborhood affected their ability to think critically? I think there are a couple of things at play. Like I've, I have studied mob mentality. I, I especially looked at the Kitty Genovese story and the Stanford prison experiments. And I was taught those as, as factual um, when I was in college, but they're not. They're lies. Um, Kitty Genovese didn't die alone and her neighbors absolutely called the police and um, the police just used it to cover it up. But even more interesting is the reason that urban legend got some got legs was because it was a really nice excuse for white flight because white people could be like, we're leaving because we're so bad, not because we have black neighbors. Um, so the more you get into a story, the more nuanced it becomes. And then the Stanford prison experiments, again, just garbage. And, and like, it's, it, it's offensive to me those, that, that, that that's even taught. Um, and, and its premise is that people are so weak that they'll never speak up for anything. They'll just always be told what to do by authority. And it's, it's a lie. Um, and so when I was writing Good Neighbors, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, I have to create circumstances 
that make this believable. And the first circumstance is that half the neighbors leave, the people with the wherewithal and, frankly, the better judgment. Um, so they're gone. And then what you have is the people who've got an ax to grind. You know, they're, they're, they're either they can't leave because they can't afford to, but remember, there's literally toxic fumes coming up. So, and they're there because they want to find out what should happen to Shelley. And I think they're just more vulnerable. But even within that subset, maybe half of the people are actually a mob. Um, and so, so then, but those people are really harmful. And I think, I do think that these kinds of mobs happen more and more. Um, because bad actors get them going and because it makes them feel like powerful in a world that they have no control over. Um, so one metaphor we did talk about that seems pretty clear throughout here is about climate change. Um, and in particular, you know, when the kids rescue Shelly out of the sinkhole, how young people in this story and in general really are being seen having the courage to do what needs to be done. So... I think we're wondering what made you want to write a horror story or a thriller or a literary book <laughs> um, spurred by, um, like, the horror story. Wow, let me say that part again. Literary book. The tragedy in this book is really spurred by inaction against climate change. So what kind of inspired that storyline? Well, I studied climate change in grad school. And um, back then there was this one class called thermodynamics of global warming and this was when people i knew in their jobs in new york were being taught climate change wasn't real because you know hired phds with degrees in like dermatology were pretending they knew something and telling employees oh it's don't worry about it let's just keep burning so much stuff um so i think this was like i don't know 2005 2006 I remember raising my hand, it was the last day of class, and I was like, so, how reversible is this? <laughs> and the, the teacher was like, you know, he's an expert in the field, and he was like, because we proved it, we've done every bit of modeling, we take everything into account, it was like, oh, they're beyond any doubt, this is just the deal. And he was like, oh, I don't think, I don't think so. And I was like, oh my God, like, the stuff that we're modeling is insane. It's like there's going to be, the world will be refugees. <laughs> like, like, just nuts stuff. And the idea that this is not only happening, but irreversible and no one was listening to it since 1970 is kind of, whoa. Um, so, I mean, I think that there's, there's one story right now in the world, and it's global warming. There are no other stories. So interesting. I'm also now I'm like spinning out from an academic standpoint because I'm like, wow, the thing that we're not talking about, like we are Rhea and we're going to destroy ourselves as we ignore all of the real problems that are happening literally like in our uh, in our society. That's so interesting. Oh, man. <laughs> um, so you mentioned this earlier um you know, the format of having these like news articles and kind of interviews throughout the book. Um, was that a tactical choice that you made early on that you knew you wanted to do it that way? Or was that something that was added later? Like, how did you make that decision? And, um, you know, when did it come into play? I think, so I wrote the prologue 
early on. And so you know that is gonna happen, but I didn't know the extent to which I would be using those notes until I think I came to a sticking point. And that point is where the neighbors turn right before the brick is thrown. And I was like, I don't know how I make this plausible. Um, and somehow just putting those, those articles in just made it feel natural and more believable. Um, the way that the tide turns and the sentiment um, against the wilds becomes sort of calcified. Um, and so it was just a, a trick. What is your general writing process like? And what inspires you to write this book or anything else you've written? Um, you know, my process is just like I sort of dig in and get lost. And then hopefully I have a deadline that like makes me find my way. Uh, <laughs> I didn't with Good Neighbors, which was, um, which was cool. I wrote this book called The Clinic and it took me five years to write it. And then I couldn't sell it. And I was like, oh, this is the worst thing. I'm so brokenhearted. And, uh, and then I kind of pulled myself together and I had this fragment of a novel that I put aside and it was Good Neighbors. And I, was, I spent not a lot of time on it, like six months on it. And I just nailed it and I felt there was kind of fire under my feet about it. But I'd also had all this feedback from all the editors who turned down the other book. And so... First off, I learned that my sales were really bad from previous books, like bad enough that no one wanted my next book, even if they did like it. And then second off, I realized um, what they seemed to want was uh, kindness, more kindness than I had been showing and generosity um, in, in my previous, like in the novel that I'd submitted, it was like, I have this thing where I feel like saying the bad parts about people is telling the truth about them. And that's not true. And I don't, I don't know why I do that. I just get lost in the words or something. Um, and so when I was writing Good Neighbors, I tried to show the good parts of people, um, which doesn't, you're like, what are you talking about? That's not true. But I think the wilds are, to me, I, I think they're realistic and also good, which I had not shown before. I have to know also, how did you come up with the idea of the couple who drew the, like, drew the house in half with the Sharpie? <laughs> yes. That was so silly. Um, I, from, from War of the Roses. <laughs> movie. No, I mean, I can't even imagine, but I do know people who are like, we're divorced, but we can't afford to We can't afford to move, move out. Divorced, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what do you do if you're really fighting? <laughs> So I didn't know if you had like, a really bad fight or you were like one, you know, I don't know. You knew a couple who had done this. That's just too funny. Um, okay. Sorry. That was just, I had to ask before we move on. Um, okay. Our last question. Oh, we have a slight also personal question. The Hungarian pastry shop is a nod to the Hungarian pastry shop by Columbia's campus. Is that, did, yeah. did I get that 100%. right? Okay. Yeah. Did you spend any time writing this book there or any time, I guess, when you were at Columbia, you had probably been there or spent time writing there? I love the Hungarian pastry shop, but I never wrote there because, like, I mean, I'm like, I'm a nut. I need absolute silence. Like, the idea of going to coffee shops. Oh, wow. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I could not I write. Earplugs that I stick in. 
in my own house. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, yeah. So, no, but I loved so going there. Yeah, and then I had a friend okay. who was in a band called Thunder Egg, and I'm sure the graffiti's gone, but, he, like, everywhere, like, all over that place. He's like, Thunder Egg rules! <laughs> <laughs> We need to go. You need to go check it out. Yeah. Yes. Our New York itinerary. I haven't been. I haven't been in a long. Like I haven't been since COVID. But I will go. And I now I will look for that at, at the pastry shop. Also take some pictures so people who don't live in New York can uh, experience it. Yeah, that would be awesome. What else are you currently reading right now? Anything what you'd I recommend? Read? Any great books you read lately? I loved Kylie Reed's Such a Fun Age. It came out last. We year. read that as a book talk book. Did you guys like it? Yes, we loved it. So anyway, uh, so Luster, I really liked too. Oh. Did you guys read that? Wow, Erica's favorite <laughs> book of 2020. You're really oh, speaking great. to us now. <laughs> that's a really good I love one. Luster. That was so, so funny. Good. It's funny too, right? It's so funny. Like... It was funny. She's funny, so tragic, cool. sexy, wild, and also like you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that. Oh, I can't believe this is happening, and also it's so incredibly specific. I like cannot imagine this. I'm here. I'm meeting these people. It was just the characters were insane, and the storylines were so fantastic. I loved it. Yeah. No, I loved it too. I loved it too. It was. It just cracked me up. I mean, it was dark, but it cracked me up. Um, right. I feel like I it liked, was funny. And then I was like, should I be laughing? This is not a happy story. <laughs> I think every writer is secretly like, please laugh. Don't ask if you should laugh. Just go ahead. <laughs> Just to cool. Please start laughing. Um, uh, and then I also liked uh, Brady Hendrix's book, uh, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. It was really good. Hmm. I haven't heard of that one. I'll have to put that in the show notes, Erica, your favorite things. People can look it up, too. I will. Hi from Mexico. Hola from Mexico. Um, I'm realizing my Spanish is so bad after being here for so long. I can't believe I took a year of Spanish in high school. <laughs> That's so funny about that. Like, yeah, you took one year in high school. Like, are you shocked that you don't remember it? I feel like I was impressed how much I did remember when I went to Columbia, but I also feel like I took like three years in high school and a year in college. So <laughs> you being like, I took one year. I'm shocked I can't converse with everyone. Um, yay for being in Mexico. I just got back from vacation too. I think mine was a little bit less of like a logistical nightmare, but that's because it's, um, you know, a destination my family goes to every year. So it's the logistics are done. That definitely helps. Yes. I read three books. Um, so I'll start with I read The Kitchen Front, which I read a review of like a year ago. And I was like, I feel like I would really enjoy this book. And it's just like a World War II historical fiction. Um, and in comparison to the Chris and Hannah book, which I feel like people either loved or really hated, this one is much more uplifting. Um, still about the strength of women and their resiliency and about really their war, kind of the other front of World War II. Um, and about grief and loss and also friendship. So I thought it was very sweet. There's also a lot of, um, basically it's like these four women who come together through these crazy circumstances. They're in a cooking competition, each trying to like better their life and get out of their current situation, um, and end up becoming like a sort of chosen family. It's very sweet. Um, and there's also a lot of like really good 
not really good, but really um, innovative recipes, which I thought was kind of fun to read, like what people would actually cook with what they were rationed. Um, and so it was cool. And then I read Good Company, which is by Cynthia Sweeney, which wrote The Nest, uh, which I liked, but I thought The Nest was a little bit slow moving. Good Company is good. It's cute. It's about a drama company um, called The Good Company in New York. Um, there's a bunch of different stories in it. It's it's good. It's like a an ensemble drama. I think it's what they're called when there's like 10 different stories. Yeah, it was very cute. I liked it a lot. I liked it better than The Nest. Um, and then I also read An American Marriage by T.R. Jones, and I did not love it. I And you know what's so funny is I posted it on my Instagram story, like this is, a, you know, the next book I read. And I seriously got eight messages of people being like, I hated this book. I also hated this book. I tried to read it, and I picked it up all different kinds of people. It was wild. It just was not good. Like the things that it said about marriage, I did not like the things that it said about like, I don't know, this like love and relationship. And I mean, there were some good themes to it, but I sat it down four times. And at the end, I was like, I have to just finish this book. So mm, don't do it. Yeah. Um, so have you read anything on vacation or have you just been trying to figure <laughs> out where you're at at all times? Well, it's been like a very social um, two weeks for me, which, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, um, not super social. So I'm, I'm really proud of myself for how, like, um, how social I've been. Two books I finished on vacation. The first is called Miles from Nowhere. Uh, so both of these books were recommendations from Chuck Palahniuk, who used to be my favorite author. He like wrote Fight Club and many other very dark books. And these are two books that he really recommended. So Miles from Nowhere is about a young woman who is like struggling with addiction and homelessness and prostitution. And it's not surprisingly very dark. I don't think that I like loved it. I don't think I got as much out of it as I was expecting, but I appreciated that it was a type of character we never read about. Um, yet is I'm sure millions of people who are struggling just to like get by day to day. Um, the second book that he recommended that I really liked was Heartburn. And Heartburn is the story of a woman who is in her second marriage, is seven months pregnant and finds out that her husband is like in love with someone else. And it's really this like riotously funny reflection on like marriage and commitment and gender roles and affairs. And it's told through the main character is like a home chef author and so she also has a bunch of recipes throughout it for like classic, like here's how you would make the best cheesecake. But she is so dry and witty and hilariously funny. And the prose of it is like very, um, it's very fast moving. It sort of reminds me of like the way that they speak in Gilmore Girls. That's how she's like writing this quickly with all of these like little jokes and all of these asides and very like metropolitan New York City um, socialite almost. And it, yeah, I thought it was like hysterically funny. Also gets you like kind of gets deep out of nowhere. Um, and I, yeah, I thought that was okay, a good one. So. Read that. I'll put that on my list. Speaking of, uh, my Mexico trip, one of my friends who's here in Mexico is going to be joining us for a special episode, which will come out next week. We are discussing the bad Muslim discount by Saeed Masood. Um, it was such a good conversation. I was so glad to be able to talk to Elise about it. And I feel like 
you know, whether you've read the book or not, there's definitely something for everybody in, um, in this episode and in this discussion. So, but it was a good book. I really liked it. Yeah. So bad Muslim discount, um, talks about Muslim families who are in California. And I happen to have a best friend who is a Muslim who also grew up in California. And so she joined us to talk about, um, how she related to some of the themes of the book, religion, um, shame, guilt, sexuality, um, relationships. And yeah, we kind of like spiral out into some deep topics. So I think it's an interesting one, whether you've read the book or not. And then after Bad Muslim Discount, we're going to start reading Transcendent Kingdom. So check our Instagram page at booktalk underscore podcast. We will post the schedule on our Instagram page so you can read along with us or, of course, read at your own pace and listen to the episodes whenever you get to that section. I can't wait to read this book and take it off my to-be-read list where it has been living forever. Same. Same. Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. Wow, if this isn't a podcasting adventure, what is one, you know? (laughs) 